Hello, welcome to the new Dalham History Podcast for all your history revision needs with Gribbin and Howarth. Hello and welcome to the new Dalham History Podcast. This episode, we're going to be taking a look at Germany, specifically the good bits of Weimar Germany after the uh, issues with hyperinflation when everything seemed to just get a little bit better. Same structure as ever. We'll give you a brief summary of the topic. We're then going to be completing a Who Am I? where Gribbin's going to try and work out Who Am I? linked to the topic before we give you a little bit of technique and talk you through a paragraph and an answer. We've also got some ideas on other places you can go for stuff about Weimar Germany. All right, so we're going to start you off with looking at the golden years, is what they're known as, the years between 1924 and 1929, roughly, where Germany sort of sees a little bit of an upturn in its fortunes. I'd say it starts in 1923, when Gustav Stresemann becomes Chancellor. He's only Chancellor for 100 days, but he sets in motion a lot of the brilliant things that happen between 1924 and 1929, really. He was in charge of... Restarting the currency, introducing the Renton mark, uh, and that replaced the old worthless currency of the hyperinflation period. Um, and then as foreign minister, he negotiated the Dawes plan with Vice President Charles Dawes, uh, getting Germany 800 million marks in an American loan, uh, which helped them to re- repay the reparations. That means in 1925, the French and the Belgians left the Ruhr. Yeah, um, so it also negotiated um, that reparation repayments would be reduced to an amount that Germany can actually manage. And the other thing that he did for the economy was the uh, Young Plan, which was a bit later on in 1929. Um, Even though the economy had recovered um, quite a a bit, um, the reparation payments were still really challenging Germany. And because the Dawes plan had worked so well, Straysman agreed this new plan with an American banker, Owen Young. And they agreed that the reparations would be reduced from £6,600 million to only £1,850 million. That's a reduction of 67%. Mm. And they could have 59 years to pay the debt. How nice. That is, well, that is a nice idea. Kind of got a little bit interrupted by the Cold War, but that, that's something for a different topic. This new investment, though, with the money that they had into the system, uh, the new injection, that meant that some of the big companies like IG Farben, BASF, they started to develop some new modern technology and management techniques. And did you know that Lufthansa became the first airline to offer cheap flights to other European cities? Mm-hmm. German EasyJet. German <laughs> EasyJet. <laughs> Um, foreign policy as well. Uh, this is a bold new period. Germany stops being a pariah after the First World War with the Treaty of Versailles and really starts to engage. It's even allowed to join the League of Nations in 1926, an early version of the United Nations. Yeah, and Stresemann changes tact, really. He he realises that Germany needs to be involved in the international community again and he negotiates their position back into the fold. Um, he also signs the Locarno Pact in 1925 um, to improve their relationship with France and Britain. Um, it also includes Belgium and Italy and it, it agrees basically to not change the borders between Germany, France and Belgium. Which is quite clever. When you think about the direction in which Hitler expands Germany, he's not really going against the treaty because the agreement was not to change the western borders. Yeah, and, and he, he only changes the east. eastern borders. Um, um, there was also the Kellogg-Briand Pact, wasn't there? 
Yes, yeah, so in that was in 1928. Germany, along with 64 other countries, signed an agreement that they would only use their armies for self-defence and would try to solve problems peacefully. So... <laughs> that lasted. Um, yeah, that lasted approximately... Yeah, well, lasted 11 years. Mm, till the Second World War, but Manchuria, mm. Spanish Civil War. So, a nice idea again. Yeah. Um, he got the Nobel Peace Prize as well, didn't he? He did win the Nobel Peace Prize. 1928. Yeah. So all in all, Stresemann has actually got quite a, quite a good reputation in Germany. But along with the sort of economic and foreign policy things that improved in Germany, you've also got um, some improvements for the standard of living, women, arts and culture, things like that. The sort of freedom that the sort of economic improvements give the people of Germany changes lives as well. They are forward thinking as well. I think it's um, pretty soon after Stresemann becomes a leader, um, there's the establishment of an institute for looking into the idea of gender, looking into the idea of, um, well, they're the first people to start to investigate decriminalising homosexuality, which leads to the opening of lots of gay bars in Berlin and Munich. Nice. Um, you've also got uh, a bit more freedom for women as well. They, the Weimar Republic tried to give equal opportunities and pay to women who worked for the government. By 1926, there are 32 women deputies in the Reichstag, right. which was higher than uh, in Britain. For and, a long time, I would have thought. Yeah. Uh, they had more freedom. <laughs> the, some of the things that they were now allowed to do were go out without a man to look after them. <laughs> I know. Wear shorter skirts. Wear more makeup and drink and smoke in public. All things you're not allowed to do at Dalham <laughs> for good reason. Um, it, it is. It's the pleasure capital of Europe, Germany. It, it's where you go if you want to see um, modern architecture, if you want to hear the latest music. That Realistically, Germany has Hollywood before Hollywood exists. It's where all the new avant-garde experimental directors uh, are based. Um, books. Things like All Quiet on the Western Front are released from Germany, discussing the futility of war. Uh, Germany becomes the leading country for scientific research. Between 1918 and 1933, it got 60 Nobel Prizes for science. 60? 16. Oh, OK. Still cool. So that's still impressive, but 60 was a... <laughs> <laughs> More than three a year. Um, yeah, so everyone seems a lot happier. Until 1929. Ooh. 1929, yeah. a year that everything goes downhill. For everyone. For everyone, yeah. Um, so within this time period as well, that we forgot to mention, is politically, the Weimar Republic is probably as stable as it's ever been. Coalitions. Yeah. Although they still are relying on coalition government, which isn't ideal, um, the coalitions include far less extreme parties. This period as well between 1924 and 1929 is known as the wilderness years for the mm -hmm. nazis because they basically disappear uh from the sort of public realm and people just ignore them because people what turn, they're saying yeah. doesn't match what people want yeah people only turn to extremism when they're desperate and actually at this point in time they're fairly happy with how things are going cooperation was paying off um i suppose if we're looking at the positives of weimar germany there are a few shadows um, lurking too. Obviously, a lot of this investment from America was loaned. At some point, they were going to be called back. Um, farming certainly didn't do well during this economic recovery. 33% of the German population were farmers and the new grain being produced meant that food prices were low. So lots of debt, 
struggling to maintain their, their standard of living. Yeah, so also you've got workers... Although they did have better wages, the cost of living was also going up, so they weren't really any better off. And in some cases, they were worse off because the cost of living was increasing faster than wages. Another thing that makes me sad to think about is little cute chubby face. Hebert dies in 1926, the the first president of Germany, and he's replaced by Hindenburg, uh, the (laughs) ageing general who is key to the Nazi party's rise unintentionally. Another thing that comes out of Stresemann is that not everyone is best pleased with the way that Germany has changed. Um, Some people, like Hitler, but others as well, were angry that Stresemann hadn't cancelled reparations or the Treaty of Versailles. They were annoyed that he was actually continuing to pay them because they thought that it was a sort of unjust thing that Germany was being made to do. Um, They also didn't like, particularly like the fact that um, Stresemann had agreed to work with France, Mm -hmm. particularly, and Britain, because they felt that they, those powers were the ones that had betrayed them after the First World War. Am I? So, it's now time for Who Am I? Gribbin's going to have to work out Who Am I? From a series of facts. As soon as she gets it, she can let us know. Otherwise, I'll just keep going until you're all bored. Uh, well, we all know how good we are, uh, how good I am at this, so uh, we might just have to keep going until everyone gets bored. <laughs> so, who am I? I was born in December 1890 in Austria-Hungary. Okay. Um, Austria, if we're being specific. Um, My father was a designer slash contractor, and not quite an architect, but certainly working in that um, realm. And my mother was a Jewish lady who converted to Roman Catholicism Mm. due to anti-Semitism in Austria at the time. So I was raised as a Roman Catholic, but have Jewish heritage. Okay. Um, Studied civil engineering in Vienna. Uh, Travelled to North Africa, Asia, uh, and throughout Europe. Okay. Studied painting in Munich and Paris. Um, Was there when the Paris exhibition opened in 1914, before being conscripted into the Austrian army. Wounded four times, losing my vision in my right eye. Um, Getting a year uh, of convalescence uh, in Vienna. And then on uh, release from hospital, I became an actor on the Vienna stage. Is it a famous artist? It's certainly a form of art. Um, Mm. In 1920, um, I began working for the German filmmaking giant UFA. Are you a director? I am a director. I am famous for the futuristic masterpiece Metropolis, released in 1927. Well, I'll tell you now that I have no idea who this person's name is, but the book opened in front of me is telling me that it's Fritz Lang. <laughs> what are the chances? Fritz Lang, a fantastic uh, film director. If you've not seen uh, The Cabinet of Dr. Calgary, which is a fantastic kind of film noir or Metropolis, the original Star Wars, have a look at M. M was one of Hitler's favourite films. Okay. Um Lang released a film once the Nazis had come to power in which he essentially said that Hitler was the devil. Uh, It was banned, understandably, by Goering. But Goering calls him into the office and says, we're willing to overlook it because Hitler loved M so much. Would you like to be in charge of our film division? So the Nazis tried to appoint a half-Jewish man who'd made an (laughs) anti-Nazi film because Hitler loved his stuff. Good for him. He, He then escaped 
through France to America and starts making films in Hollywood. But, absolute classic, died in 1974. Probably the right choice. Definitely. Left his wife and his bank account behind um, when he fled from Germany. So went to America penniless and his wife became a leading Nazi. She took the job that was offered to him. (laughs) Wow, what a life. Yeah. Right, it's technique time. We're talking about the source question, not to be confused with the interpretation questions. Um, Paper 3 has a source question that asks you to compare two sources. Yeah, how useful are these sources for an inquiry into, and then it will give you something to refer to. Keyword there is useful, isn't it? It's not asking you about reliability. It's asking you about utility. How useful are the sources? Yeah, so basically it's all about what's in them. What are they telling you that's really good for... That specific topic. So imagine you've got two sources about the golden years in Weimar, Germany. You might get a picture, maybe one of the paintings, um, showing you, maybe one of the gross ones, uh, showing you about the decadence of Weimar, Germany. Uh, then you might also get a written source where somebody's talking about how much better the uh, economy got and how workers had uh, uh, more access to to jobs. Yeah, usually the sources will have some different information in them, which makes them a bit more useful because it's giving you sort of like a cross section of mm-hmm. of different opinions or different ideas. And getting you settled ready for the interpretations later because it's all part of a, a package. Yeah, you can use the sources for this source question, how useful question in your interpretations um, question, as long as you mainly focus on the interpretations. We digress, though. Yeah. The structure for this question is, it all comes down to COP, doesn't it? Yeah, I think basically content, own knowledge, provenance is what you need to focus on. So what's in the source, where has it come from? Um, Put some of your own knowledge in there. And then at the end, you need to have a little bit of a judgment to say overall how useful you think it is. Yeah, right. And use those grey words. It is mostly useful. It is partially useful. Uh, it's it not at all useful if you really think so. Highly unlikely that they put a source which is not useful at all in there. But when it's talking about provenance, nature, what is it? Origin, when's it from? Purpose, why was it made? You just got to get those words into your answer. Yeah, and I think as well... Lots of people, when we've done mocks or we've done practice questions of these in class, lots of people overthink this question because it's quite a difficult one to get your head around the sort of concept of how useful. Um, But actually, there's a really easy way to approach this question. And we've started doing this in class. We've got a tick list. You need to do four things for each source, which means you can answer this in eight sentences. Yeah, you really can. So... If we imagine, let's picture that source, it's a painting, it's making the soldiers look really creepy and weird. you find them in any of the textbooks. You would approach it. You would talk about the source. You'd use details from the source in your answer, pick out something that is key. Maybe the fact that the um, man with the badge um, shows that he, he used to be part of the monarchy and he's not buying into the democracy that's going on. You then link it to what comes next? Uh, link into your own knowledge. So um, have something about how German people felt about the First World War or how they felt that Germany had recovered after the First World War or the attitudes in society at the time against are they in support of the Weimar government or not? Get a name in there, get a date in there, mm. which then links into? Provenance, where has it come from? So who's made it? And what is it? It's written underneath it. It's always in the caption underneath. Yeah, if you don't know anything about the author, fine. Just sort of skirt over that. But if it's a painting, you can 
Is it being positive or negative? Yeah, is it positive, negative? It's a painting, it's his own interpretation. Mm -hmm. So therefore, you know, is it less useful because it's one person's opinion? And then finish off with a judgment. Yeah, and this only How useful was it? Yeah, this only needs to be a sentence at the end. This source is somewhat useful for the inquiry into whatever it is, because you need to explain it. So basically it's an eight mark question. You should be should be spending between Eight and ten minutes on it, really. If you've hit ten minutes, move on. Again, it's one of those questions where you're not going to gain many more marks by writing for 15 minutes. Cut yourself off. As long as you've talked about both sources, as long as you've been very clear in talking about own knowledge and the source in your answer, you're going to be picking up a pretty good mark. Yeah, also, if you miss out own knowledge or provenance for both the sources, you can only get four marks out of eight. So you need to you need to mention what it's written in the question. It says yeah. using your own knowledge and the sources, do what it says. Yeah. So where can we go to find out more? Well, you can start by um, watching or reading some of the things that um, we spoke about before that were part of the cultural changes in the Weimar Revolution. You've got Fritz Lang's film uh, Metropolis. Um, you've also got the book. Uh, All Quiet on the Western Front, which was written by an ex-soldier who was very critical of the war. And that's also been turned into a a film as well, Mm. so you could watch that. Um, I know last year the um, British Film Institute did kind of an overarching film about the films of Weimar Germany. It was called Beyond Your Wildest Dreams, Weimar Cinema. Um, So that talks to a lot of the films that came out at that time. That's available uh, to watch on YouTube. um, you've also got Simple Histories. I think they've got a sort of 10, 15-minute um, video on YouTube about the Weimar Republic and the golden years as well. They have. And Mr Howard's got a documentary all about the Bauhaus art movement. Um, it was a BBC4 one, so it's quite highbrow. But if it's something that you are interested in, if you're an art student, you want to look into the architecture and the design styles of the period, it's really good, really interesting. shows how a lot of modern art and, and thinking and even fonts come from this little building this little factory in Bauhaus uh, which is near Weimar it's all born from there most of the stuff in your life even things like Apple phones have a link back to this little group of weirdo hippie artists (laughs) in Weimar Germany so it's joke time we've got one each do you want to go first or shall I you go first okay in one of his sermons Count von Galen criticised the educational programmes of the Hitler Youth A member of the congregation interrupted him. How can a man without children dare to speak on about education? Von Galen countered, Sir, I'm not going to tolerate any criticism of our Führer in my church. (laughs) Because the Führer doesn't have any church. What's yours? What's yours? Uh, Mine is, I've gone for a slightly lower brow one. Um, Hitler visits a lunatic asylum where the patients all dutifully perform the German salute. Suddenly, Hitler sees one man whose arm is not raised. Why don't you greet me the same way as everybody else? He hisses. The man answers, my Führer, I'm an orderly, not a madman. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. Very good. You had any jokes from kids? No. No badges to hand out this week then? Poor effort. You had any kids come and use the secret code word from the year eight GCSE video? No. That podcast needs listening to by the kids if they want to get their free suite. Anyway.
It's goodbye from her. Goodbye from him. <laughs>